Welcome to the SPE Podcast, powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers. You're listening to SPE Live, the energy transition, envisioning a lower carbon future. The audio from this episode was previously recorded on July 24th, 2023. And now your moderator, Mervyn Azetta. Hello and welcome to this SPE Live on the energy transition, envisioning a lower carbon future. My name is Mervyn Azetta, and I'm the Global Flexible Work and Culture Project Manager for SLB. In this role, I'm responsible for enabling enterprise-wide radical flexibility and influencing strategic culture shifts to drive high performance. Today's SPE Live is expected to last about 30 minutes. I encourage you to engage during the program, share your thoughts and reactions, ask questions. We would love to answer them as time permits. Before starting our conversation, I'd like to invite you to attend the Energy Transition Symposium scheduled to take place on the 22nd to 23rd of August in Houston, Texas. The theme for this event is Transitioning for a Better Energy Future. We hope to deliver a prominent and dedicated energy transition event, collecting and disseminating knowledge from industry leaders, technical experts, academicians, practitioners, financial community and ESG leaders. And together through collaboration, advance the conversations, technology and exchanges that will move our industry forward. For more information about this event and how to register, please scan the QR code displayed on the screen. Now, it's an incredible honor and pleasure to introduce our guests, three dynamic, exceptional and transformational energy leaders. Our first guest is Alison Anderson Book, Chief Sustainability Officer at Baker Hughes. She oversees Baker Hughes Energy Transition Strategy by driving sustainable operations, supporting commercial energy transition solutions for customers, and ensuring market creation of the solutions via stakeholder engagement and policy development. Next, we have Alexei Bisotsky. General Manager of Carbon Capture, Utilization and Storage, CCUS, as part of Chevron New Energies. Often described as a strategy translator, these adept at leading teams to convert aspirational goals into reality amidst complex technical business and geopolitical challenges, as well as deploying CCUS solutions to accelerate progress toward the lower carbon ambitions of Chevron and its customers. Last, but certainly not the least, is David Reed, Chief Technology Officer and Chief Marketing Officer at NOB. David is a pioneer and champion of strategic growth in business, business models, machine tech designs, technology, and industrial digitization. He's an author, innovator, a true DEI champion. He's founded several organizations, including Red M, a pro bono crowdsourcing organization, and currently serves on multiple boards. Alison, Alexei, and David, welcome to this SPE Live. Thank you. Thank you. To reiterate, the topic of our conversation is the energy transition envisioning a lower carbon future. So let's get started with some basics. Alison, I'm sure a lot of our audience have heard about the energy transition. It's a word or phrase that's creating both excitement 
and anxiety for many in our industry today. But can you briefly explain for those that may not know what exactly it is and what it means to you in particular? So the origin of that, I always start with the, the main origins so that everybody level sets because the way we use it inside of our sector is a little bit different than how the rest of the world uses it. So the rest of the world, the energy transition was meant to mean the phase out of fossil fuels. Uh, and so, it, you know, we would also state in line with the Paris Agreement, which means um, limiting temperature increase to one and a half degrees Celsius. Okay. Now, how many companies are using that term is related to just looking for the lowest carbon future, enabling the use of fossil fuels, but making sure that we have abatement solutions to get those to net zero. Okay, so just depending on the audience, they use a slightly slightly different uh, definition. Wonderful, thank you very much for that. I think it makes sense. Um, so I'm going to go to Alexei. Alexia, what's the role of oil and gas producers, service companies, and other ecosystem actors in the energy transition? Oh, thank you, Marin. Yes, and maybe I'll just start off by adding a little bit to what Alison said on energy transition and what it is. And so if you look at our energy systems, right, we have been in transition for many years, so it's not new. It is really extension of what we always have seen. Right? At the beginning of petroleum age, in the mid-1800s, you know, most of the oil was used for kerosene lamps. In the early 20th uh, century, through development of internal combustion engines, uh, demand for petroleum, products shifted to transportation, and then, of course, later on, natural gas kind of replaced coal uh, as a cleaner uh, fuel for power sector. So energy had always been in a transition, so to speak. Um, and really, there are two key ingredients are necessary to ensure successful energy transition. Transition. So one is the capital, and you need a lot of it. And two is capabilities. You know, the technical and commercial expertise necessary to build complex projects and to operate them and to operate in emerging markets. And if you look at the oil and gas sector, you will see that it has both of those ingredients. We have the capital, and we have the capabilities. So really the oil and gas sector is uniquely situated to lead energy transition and continue providing people with reliable, affordable, and now ever cleaner energy. And I believe that oil and gas sector can and will play a significant role, uh, and in many cases leading role in transition uh, of energy system. So the second part of the question was really of the role of other uh, partner organization. And if you look at the path to net zero, it is a narrow path and it requires extreme partnerships and it requires all hands on deck. And so to reach the net zero by 2050, we require rapid deployment of technologies that are available today. Um, but also it requires technologies that have uh, that are still in the test stages. So we need to, as an oil and gas sector, we need extreme partnership with technology companies to help to de-risk and scale up technologies that will be absolutely critical to get into the net zero by 2050. So I think oil and gas industry will lead energy transition. Energy transition does require partnerships and it requires all hands on deck approach. 
absolutely i agree with you i think that the transition truly requires collaborative action across borders countries sectors and industry besides given the complexity and scale of this transition in particular, and its interdependencies across different systems, there's not a chance that one stakeholder group or industry can tackle the challenge alone. So now I'm going to double click on the role of the oil and gas industry. And David, I was curious to know why it's important for the oil and gas sector and other industries or associated industries to decarbonize current operations. Mm. Well, I, I like what Alison and Alexa said, so I'll, I'll continue the adding game. Um, I, I think um, often we get polarized, and that's our challenge right now, is everyone seems to look at this as a one side or other thinking. Um, and so moving away from that, that that's that's really important for us, is to, is to not get yourself in a camp, uh, but to start thinking about um, the importance of something that is coming our way uh, and we need to respond to it. And, and the beauty of it, if, and if I look at my career and the things we've done, particularly deep water and shale, like big challenge, didn't know how to do it, and we're going to work it out. But big opportunities. And I think that's the way to look at this. It's another big challenge, big opportunity moment for us. And, and we're wired that way from working with other industries. Um, you find that they're not as fast at dealing with things. And, and sometimes we think of ourselves as slow often amongst ourselves. You'll hear everyone saying we're, we're not rapid at developing. And, and that's just because it frustrates us because we have a desire to be fast. I think our, uh, our whole ecosystem is driven uh, to make things happen. And we're very business oriented, very capital understanding. Um, and it sometimes frustrates people just to look at the capital it's going to cost to build and to do this stuff, but but the right thinking is, this is a challenge for us. This is exactly our moment uh, as an industry. We are agile. We've done amazing things. I think people who come into the industry learn uh, how amazing we are at, at, at jumping on technology, at applying things, at trying things. Um, we're, we're very good at it, and that's exactly what is needed now. It is coming, um, and there's always that thought of maybe if I, I bury my head in the sand, we're, we're not going to have to deal with this. But the truth is, it's opportunity. And I think when people understand that opportunity is the name of the game, you start to really sit back and go, what can we do here? And there's a ton. There's a ton of work for all of us um, in, in making this happen and making it better. I, I, for our company, we were um, reached out, I think it was maybe seven years ago, maybe a bit longer, um, the renewables people were asking for help. And, and I love that. They looked at us as they, they actually, we had some people come to a meeting, were shocked by the type of people we had uh, and said, they're, you've got really, you know, a, a mixed generations and diversity and, and agility. And I, I just didn't expect it. And you uh, think you could help us. We have problems that need solved. And I think that's the bottom line is, is opportunity for all of us. You're absolutely right. I thought you shared very interesting thoughts there. I really do think as well that decarbonization enables new phases of value creation for us as an industry and helps us drive sustainable growth as well. Brilliant. So you mentioned renewables um, when you were talking and obviously I'm curious to know, Alexi, what is the role of other energy forms, renewables, CCUS, you're a CCUS manager, obviously in Chevron, you have a lot of insights into that. So I'm curious to hear, what's the role of geothermal, hydrogen, all of these different energy sources or resources, and how can we leverage technology and innovation to achieve a sustainable high tech and lower carbon future? 
Absolutely. No, good question. Thank you, Marvin. So I'll try, um, I'll start the answer and I'll ask David to add um, to, towards the end. And uh, what I like about energy transition that really, if you look at the pathway to net zero by 2050, what you'll see that it's a portfolio approach, right? So we need it all to work to get to net zero. So we need renewables, we need CCUS, we need geothermal, we need solar, wind, nuclear, all those things that are part of portfolio that's required for us to get uh, to net zero. So, the, so from the portfolio of technologies, energy transition is truly an end game, right? We can't choose winners and losers today. It is a portfolio approach. It is an end game and you need it all to work. So let me now pivot a little bit to the CCUS and um, give you some uh, insights there. So th there is no net zero without CCUS, right? If you look at the consensus, there's a consensus among forecasts that net zero emissions by 2050 is not possible without uh, scale deployment of CCUS and other carbon dioxide removal technologies. For example, if you look at IEA, and in their sustainable development scenario, they rely on 15% of project emission reduction will come uh, from CCS. And also, if you look at IPCC 1.5 special report, CCS is a must. So CCS today, uh, CCS on point sources, is really very, very, very cost-effective way to reduce large volume of CO2 quickly. And by deploying CCS on massive scale, we can really not make a dent on CO2 emissions uh, globally. So that's the CCUS perspective, and uh, I'll turn it over to David to comment a little bit more on the renewables and the business side. Sure, thanks, Alexei. Uh, for for NOB, it's a bit different because we make things, so so we we already were in a lot of um, other energies, um, not in as big a way as we have become lately. Uh, but I, I tend to think of it kind of as three R's, if we can just think of it that way, the rejuvenate what we already have. So CCUS is a good example, taking things and power systems have seen a, a huge change in particularly in US land. We were starting to learn how to, to find more efficient ways to use power, contain power, um, get more efficient in that space. So there's tons of rejuvenation work that needs to go on. Then repurposing gets really interesting, particularly for us, we are we're jack-up designers and we make jacking systems and we make cranes. And so we've actually moved very heavily into the installation business for offshore wind. Uh, we have floating wind design. Geothermal is a perfect example of this idea that, that you're repurposing, you know, something you already do. Um, and so in geothermal, we're doing, we're doing tons of work. Uh, there's a lot of products that, that are going on, but I think that's for everyone to understand. It's drilling. Um, they certainly didn't want us <laughs> when we turned up and, uh, they knew it was a downturn in the oil business, and so as we were trying to invent new things, they're like, "We've tried it all. Please don't, please don't do anything." But there's a whole new wave in geothermal that has happened because of oil and gas. People putting time and effort in to say, um, "Here's where invention is needed." It came, comes really from shale, um, but that thinking of you can invest in technology and take a low cost thing and, and make it perform better, and that's what's happening inside of geothermal. And then when you go to the third R which is to reposition, all of these businesses have been trying to get cost out. And so we find that in solar, we find that in wind, and, and it's not really through innovation that they've been moving. And so we've got new businesses in those spaces um, where we're actually solving it, biogas. There's a lot of things that we're, 
were new and opportunistic for us to say, as manufacturers, we can solve problems. Uh, a simple example would be um, in, in wind towers on land, a couple of things we learned that, that when you try to get higher to get more wind, they were struggling to get the cheap towers coming in from outside of the US to get under bridges. And so we came up with this system working with another company to um, build a tower on site. And so we actually bring a manufacturing system into the field. And then we developed a custom type uh, crane that apparently everyone had been using traditional cranes. And they were costing too much because they weighed on weather, but it's windy. So you're going to get waiting on weather problems. And so we designed a more stable clay crane system. So I think that type of thinking from our industry is available across the board. And so that whole kind of um, getting yourself into a new market is definitely something we can all consider as well. I love how you use the power of three there with the three R's, very brilliant. <laughs> I know that Alison has a very interesting perspective on that question as well. So I'd invite Alison to share our thoughts. You know, the I think what has happened a lot is we're so focused on the longer term event horizon in the energy transition. So there's a lot of excitement about all of the things that, that um, our, our two other panelists here uh, mentioned. But oftentimes we forget about that sort of bit that's right in front of us. And so a big part of what companies can do today in our sector sits on efficiency. Okay. And not simply the that that um, older concept of what efficiency means in terms of drilling wells faster, you know, et cetera. Meaning that in the energy transition, efficiency looks like your you have your normal efficiency gains, but you layer on emissions reduction with it. Okay, and so any company that can really focus on the emissions they can reduce today in their operations is the first step towards getting to net zero. Okay, so you need to do that while you're you're um, helping prove up some of the other uh, frontier spaces like like hydrogen and other areas, because those still have some pretty major hurdles that, that we've got to make sure we can jump over. All right. And so so for now, just let us not forget that there's a lot to be gained in having a, a much more efficient and sustainable operations today in the areas that we operate. That means every individual gets to drive the energy transition forward because that takes a choice from every single person within a company. I'll head it back to you. I, I like that. I also, um, I, I, there's, a, there's a challenge that we face in that we're looking at huge manufacturing opportunities or a manufacturer. Um, we almost need a scope four, you know, break because we're going to be making all these things. We actually have massive construction plans ahead beyond anything we've done in oil and gas. But we will get punished because we're going to use carbon in the process. And so back to Alison's point, the opportunity is, um, even as companies, we're going to have to find ways to do things better. And uh, as a manufacturer, there's tons of pressure. We definitely could use some scope for if we look at the work we're doing and how it helps our clients. And we get no benefit for that. And we're, we're actually more punished. But but uh, this this actually means tons of manufacturing. And um, that's, a, that's a really tough pressure to put on, but an opportunity too. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you, David, and thank you, Alison, for sharing this. I do want to come back to the fact that there is so much we can do even now to support the 
journey to the energy transition and just thinking about talents and training. I'm curious to know, Alison, what's your opinion on the role of education, training, and professional organizations like SP in supporting this energy transition? You know, there's there's some, I guess, rhetoric out there about this idea about, that we would upskill the oil and gas sector, right? I'd like to point out something that has been brought up multiple times in listening sessions with, with, with people I've been working with. That, that makes it seems like we're not skilled. So that term upskilling implies that you're you're training more because we weren't skilled to begin with. That couldn't be more false, okay? There's not an upskilling issue here. It really, the future for the sector and the role of SPE is, is taking highly skilled people and then applying that amazing skill set to a different problem, right? And so, so the future sits in being able to give real-world examples to apply um, experience and knowledge of decades to just different problem sets, right? And so in some cases, yeah, if you're a college graduate, uh, you'll, you'll be trained on, on something new that might not be a core oil and gas or, or, or something else in there. And maybe you'll start out as a, a geothermal um, drilling expert, okay? But there's a whole breadth of experience that we would be leaving on the table if we didn't think about um, utilizing the skills that we have working for us today. I think SPE is well positioned to help make that transition. That's well said, Alison. And maybe I'll just add, and that's the question we get a lot from the especially students as they graduate universities. I think it's important, as Alison mentioned, to, to say that our skill sets are very transferable, right? So we are, the amount of things we have to build to support energy tradition is amazing, right? So we are at the beginning of the next industrial revolution, and the skill set that all people went to schools for and practiced for many, many years, that's what will be required to make that happen. So our skill sets, folks in oil and gas, is very transferable, and we can uh, migrate between, you know, we can support the energy transition very effectively. The one thing you always need, though, you need a curiosity, right? There's a lot of new knowledge coming out, and that's very important. We can we continue to learn, and we continue to be curious, and we continue to try new things and support this uh, um, energy transition. Wonderful. I see we're doing pretty well with time. So I'd like us to take some questions from the audience. And my first question would likely go to David. And it's from Omer Tahir. Is oil and gas drilling revolutionizing mining industry too? Are players transitioning from open pit mining to actual wells to attract to extract lithium, boron, copper, and other special metals? Interestingly, um, geothermal and lithium go well together. So that is a process that, that is in, uh, being discussed right now. We have a number of jobs where we're actually looking at lithium production um, through wells, which uh, but, but fits well with geothermal. Um, there are places where um, we are working on drill ship conversions to do offshore um, mining uh, in deep water, where there is some of these rare earth minerals on the seafloor. Um, a lot of emotions about that, but but that is going on, um, and we we do we do play in mining. Um, I don't know if we I would say that that this is a wholesale thing that's happening, but but it's certainly an opportunity to consider. Okay, 
Very good. So we take the second question also from LinkedIn by Omer. What is the biggest challenge bottleneck in every speaker's opinion to meet our objectives of 1.5 degrees C? Supply chain, materials, or technology adoption or adaptation? Pardon. I think all of you could take this one, really. Sounds good. I think I, I can start and I'm sure other speakers will add. So to me, the you know, the energy transition, it is the policy enabled markets, right? So the first thing that's required is a policy that's capable to move us forward, right? So I think that's the first bottleneck. Uh, and the United States, now we are well situated, as I think we have a sufficient amount of public uh, uh, funding to start that transition. And then the second, of course, is a public acceptance. We have to build a lot of things. And we haven't built it for many, many years, right? And uh, the idea of energy transition uh, being ever clean and won't impact people around it is false, right? You'll be building things around population. And I think public acceptance will be the, the, the second challenge. And, and the third one is really is regulatory, right? To make it fast, to execute things at the speed that's required to meet the 2050 targets, you got to approve all the projects a lot faster than we do now and then move them forward. So those are three things that are on top of my mind, but they're all manageable and will uh, prevail. All right, Allison. Yeah, so I take a slightly different tack. There's the, from the perspective of what businesses are doing, what are the challenges, right? Which is a lot of what Alexi was talking about. But remember businesses, even if we get all the businesses in the world to get to net zero, there's still a huge consumerism part that's driving a lot of um, bad behaviors. And so I think truthfully, the challenge for the meeting the Paris Agreement is that people are unwilling to sacrifice uh, certain things that they have, or they think that they have to sacrifice things instead of just making smarter choices about the use of certain products, being smarter about power, et cetera. But consumerism continues to be one of the single greatest challenges in a warming climate, okay? Because there's, you know, business only gets us so far. And so I just want to point that out. And this is a challenge that we close every meeting. I, I, I can, I ask this question every meeting. I'm sure my staff are tired of it. But we always say today's sustainability challenge, what are you going to do? Hmm. Uh, what choice are you going to make? What are you going to commit to? Okay. And if everybody took that on and did one thing, I'd be willing to bet we'd get a huge percentage of the way there. All right. I like that, Allison. David, you want to add something? Not sure. Yeah, because um, I think um, we're we're in the depths of planning and executing giant projects, um, and that all of them are trapped with the same issue. We have these great theories, great conferences, great technologies, and to to uh, I don't think there's a single one misses out on the infrastructure problem. Um, and who's going to do what work and how are we going to be able to do this? And so there's tons and tons of theory about big things we can do, but getting power to something, uh, transmitting power, moving power, moving hydrogen, which is you know another interesting challenge we're looking at. I mean, our first big wind project looks like um, it's going to power platforms like wells and drilling and production and because it's simple. You can put the power straight into those systems, but actually coming onto land at transmission. So there's tons of government work to be done as well as business work to work out how are we going to get all these different forms of energy around the world 
um, to function. And so there's there's that's a that's a big challenge. And the other side of that challenge is how are we going to get affordable energy to you know places in the world that desperately need it? Um, and that's that's another part that is those are both things that tend to not come up, but they are actually the big issues. Great. So let's take one question from SP Energy Stream, and the question is from S. Bateja. Should we not try to innovate novel value-added products from petroleum to sustain the importance of the industry? Who would like to take that? I can talk a little bit. I mean, we're seeing this in Saudi right now where we... Um, we're a large fiberglass company and we're, we're solving a lot of problems in that space. One of the interesting things I've seen is people are so used to steel. Um, it's the answer for everything. And um, it's actually been an interesting journey looking at what's possible. And, and, and the, with Saudi, they were just started to realize that, you know, this is a hydrocarbon based product that I make, you know, I don't make steel. And so it was, it's been an interesting transition for them and others to start realizing we need to look at different materials, new materials, and, and there are hydrocarbon solutions in the middle of that. You know, if I could add on on that, David, like we're, both of our companies are manufacturers, right? And so the, uh, for us, we're using flexible pipe actually to, to hopefully uh, yeah. transition some of the steel pipe to be lined with something that's, that's more extruded. So that's an example of, of a little bit of innovation there. There's a second kind of innovation that I point to. It's taking technology that you applied in one sense, being able to fine tune that and then use it for other applications, sort of like the reskilling versus upskilling uh, thing that I spoke about earlier. And so a lot of what we're working on is, is used across oil and gas, CCS, hydrogen, like you need compressors for anything where you're gonna wanna move a gas. So. It's, it's a very logical outgrowth from what we're doing today in terms of, of being able to move gases and liquids around. There's a lot of innovation to be had. Yeah, that's a good point, Alison. Flexible pipe is, a, is actually one of the great solutions right now for hydrogen transmission, which is really interesting. So we do the same. Um, yep. But it's been, it was used originally, just you're eliminating connections and allowing, um, it's, a, it's an innovation that just eliminates work and weight. So yeah, I mean, these, these systems, I mean, we've been doing gas stations for about 50 years. And when you dig them up, it's the, the pipe is the same. So it's an interesting product for longevity. And, and nobody thinks of the waste of, of steel and how it rots. So, yeah, there, there's tons of that space. I agree. Totally. All right. Thank you so much. Um, I've seen we've come to the end of the show. And I thought that was a very great conversation. There's definitely a lot more to come at the symposium. So please do well to register and attend the symposium in August. We're looking forward to seeing you there. Alexi, Alison, and David, thank you for joining us on this SPE Live and sharing such brilliant insights. And to our audience, thank you for joining us today. Look forward to seeing many of you at the Energy Transition Symposium in August. Don't forget to register. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the SPE Live podcast. For more content, visit the SPE Energy Stream, the industry's digital pulse at streaming.spe.org. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and review. Join us next time on the SPE Live podcast.